0: Hey, welcome to the Scrum, GBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kadzis. Hello, Peter. Hey there. Also with us in this episode, our colleague Ken Cooper. He is currently a senior editor at GBH News, the same title, I believe, as Peter. And he has a hell of a journalistic resume. Ken, for listeners who aren't familiar with where you've been and what you've done, can you give them a quick recap?
1: Well, thank you, Adam. Um, Like Peter, I've been in the news business for 40 odd years. Um, Most of my time in daily newspapers, close to 30, was split either between either at the Boston Globe or the Washington Post. Uh, Early in my career as a reporter at the Boston Globe, I shared a Pulitzer Prize for what was then called Special Local Reporting. Uh, It was a 13 part series. There were six of us who wrote about institutional racism in Boston, sliced and diced that. And at the Washington Post, I covered Congress a few years and also went overseas and covered India and the Indian subcontinent. And I've been at GBH now four and a half. I'm a radio rookie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we asked Ken to join us to talk about the 2021 Boston mayor's race. Specifically, because back in 2012, he wrote a paper for the Trotter Review, published by the William Monroe Trotter Institute at UMass Boston, titled Denver and Boston, Why One City Elects Black Mayors and the Other Has Not. Three of Denver's last four mayors have been people of color, Wellington Webb, Federico Pena, and Michael Hancock, who was elected in 2010 and is still in office. Boston, of course, has never had a mayor of color. So Ken, what made you decide to compare those two cities back when you wrote this piece?
1: Well, besides the fact that I've lived long stretches of my life in the two places, and have been a political observer for a long time and a political reporter, I was struck by a sense I had among well-educated, politically engaged, Black residents of Boston, I was struck by how little sense they had that it was possible to elect a Black mayor, and often the reason cited was the Black population is too small. And I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, well, my hometown with a Black population is even smaller, 10% versus 22, 24% in Boston. Well, We got two Black mayors already, and I started wondering about how that happened in Denver and why it hadn't happened in Boston and you know I knew that you know Tom Menino could be mayor for life but he couldn't be mayor forever and I thought I could write an article that perhaps would illustrate to self-doubters Boston's black community that it could be done and here's how it was done somewhere else so That was my motivation. This is not the first time actually I've written about my hometown of Denver, Um, but the first time in an academic journal.
0: The article itself is fascinating. It is packed with detail. Anyone listening to this should take the time to read it. We'll make sure to get a link online. I'll tweet out a link as well. But for people who haven't yet read it, what were the big answers that you came up with about why Denver has done this twice and Boston never has.
1: I think the biggest reason, and there's more than one, um, is that Black residents of Denver are less internally divided, significantly so, than Black residents of Boston. Uh, In Boston, you have not quite a third of Black residents were born in other countries, uh, most notably the Caribbean, but also to growing extent in Africa, African countries. Whereas that number, when I wrote that article in Denver, was about 8%. Uh, and there are a lot of tensions between native-born and foreign-born Black residents of Boston. Uh, and even within the foreign-born part, there are tensions between, for example, Haitians and Jamaicans. The other internal division in Boston, which is really debilitating, is even if you were born in this country, to Black residents of Boston who were born in or around Boston, there are tensions between those two. I was president of a meeting hosted by some Black organizations when Black women in the audience got up and started disparaging what she called implants, <laughs> completing the words imports and transplants. Uh, she was addressing a panel I don't think she knows, mostly implants in her words. Uh, Those tensions are really debilitating. They're not present in Denver. Uh, Both Michael Hancock, the current mayor of Denver, and his Black predecessor, Wellington Webb, neither was born in Denver. And In all my visits to Denver, I've never heard anybody mention that as some kind of negative. Well, he wasn't born here. Why should he be mayor? Nobody says that. You hear that all the time in Boston. And Boston's black communities to overcome that. It may be easing among younger people who have gone to school together or the to close proximity together and share, you know, musical taste or dress styles, party together, that kind of stuff. So it may have eased somewhat. Um, the other thing that Boston lacks right now, which it once had was some sort of internal Political organization. There was once a thing called the Black Political Task Force in Boston, which was sort of a broker for votes. The candidates gave out endorsements uh, to candidates that were judged to be serving the Black community's interest or likely to serve the Black community's interest, and then electioneered for them on election day, passed out poll cards with their slate. But a byproduct of that was that members of the Black Political Task Force got politically educated, politically engaged, and any number of them ran for public office. Some won, some didn't. Most notably, Charles Yancey had been president, an early president of Black Political Task Force. Um, Demmer didn't have that, but they had this amazing little cabal of, of five Black men who were kind of young Turks who wanted to push aside the old Black Guard Political office, elected office, and they met Saturday after Saturday morning at breakfast and plotted and schemed, and were wildly successful. Mayor, a district attorney, time in state rep offices, high-ranking judge. Um, It was a small outfit. It was kind of exclusive. Most of them were lawyers, which in some ways doesn't fit with sort of an openness and, and. transparency that you would like in an entity like that, but it was effective. And it was partly because they believed they could make a difference. And I think that's what I found wanting, maybe until recent years in Boston, the sense that, you know, we get our act together, we can, we can elect people.
0: Peter Kansas, you have been covering Boston mayors for a long time, going back to Kevin White. How did Ken's insights into the way politics has worked up until now here in Boston, how did that analysis, based in part on his experiences in another comparable metropolis, square with what you've seen over the years as someone who grew up in Boston and has covered City Hall for decades?
2: Well, it reminded me of just how unique Boston is, and I'm using the word unique in a way pejoratively. Um, it's a very tribal town, and people who come here or people who were born here of, you know, whatever the color of their skin, um, I, I, I think. Uh, are either either adapt to that tribalism or are infected by it. Um Boston's an old, old city and um it's taken it a long time to shake off many of the less appealing aspects of its past. Um specifically racism. Um You know, let me throw two dates out. Well, before I get to the dates, you can't really talk about City Hall and the black community without factoring in um, school desegregation, what's often referred to colloquially as forced busing. I don't think people who didn't live through it understand how traumatic that was to the city of Boston. Um, I know as, um, you know, a local kid, the guy who grew up in Dorchester, who covered three years of the street demonstrations and riots as a young reporter, how shaken I was by it. Although the city did emerge from it in 1983, Um, and that's the year that, the, that Mel King, you know, um, was one of the two finalists, uh, Ray Flynn and Mel King. Now, I'd like to ask Ken, when I'm done with my harangue here, if Mel King could have been elected mayor of Denver. Mel was a very, was and is uh, a wonderful guy, but a pretty radical personality. Um, and it strikes me that the black candidates that have emerged or the minority candidates that have emerged in Denver were um, much more mainstream than Mel King was. But 1983 is interesting for another reason, too, and that's the year Larry DeCara um ran for mayor. Now, Larry didn't make it to the final. He only got about 9% of the vote, but he was a Boston city councilor, and he was the only member of the Boston city council that would not put his name to a full-page ad that ran in the Globe and the Herald, um, uh, attacking school desegregation, attacking busing. Um, That's more than a footnote in Boston's history, or it should be. But it's telling that only one among the nine then-councillors would refuse to put his name on what was clearly, uh, let's be kind and call it a racial statement. Um, One of nine, but it did mark a change. That change was marked by Mel King making it to the final, um, but that was very much, um, I would say in a positive way, a black versus white thing, if you will. And what I mean by that is the divisions that can, I think, very sensitively um, sketched out that existed and still exist in the B- Boston were overcome when people of color had said, enough, we're voting for our guy. Now, after that, Ray Flynn, who had been a desegregation-slash-busing opponent, worked tirelessly to begin to heal those rifts. But it's really impossible to consider citywide politics without factoring in those nasty, nasty days of um, school desegregation.
0: Ken, when Peter said that he'd love to get your take on whether Mel King could have been elected in Denver, I saw you sort of nodding thoughtfully, uh, seeming to ponder the question. What do you think? Could Mel King have been elected there? Or, you know, the, the recollection I have from your article is that his pitch, which I wasn't here to see, I've only learned about it after the fact, that his pitch, as Peter said, was very different from the pitch of the men who did become Black mayors in Denver.
1: They were quite different. Um, one of the reasons I was pondering the question was if Mel King had lived his life in Denver...
2: Ah, that's an out, Ken. That's an out. <laughs> would he have been the same Mel King? Now, very good point. I
1: think not you know Boston has activist spirit in general and Denver has more of a pragmatic outlook. I remember once talking to Wellington Webb for an article a freelance article that never got published around the time that the Democratic National Convention was held in Denver where Barack Obama was nominated and at that point it was something phenomenal was going on like I think the Speaker of the Colorado House, the President of the Colorado Senate, the mayor, there were all these African-Americans in these powerful positions based on this tiny population. And I was asking him, why is that so? And he said an interesting thing. This is how he put it. Here, people don't care if your people came over on the Mayflower. What they care about is, can you get the wagon up over the mountain? All right, Can you do the job? Are you pragmatic? And in fact, you know, Wellington Webb, that first black mayor of Denver, you know, as a young man, before he started plotting and scheming to run for office, wasn't so different from LK. You know He was a local leader of Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Push coalition. Um, he had a sit-in in the mayor's office with the leader of the local Black Panther Party. The protest, police brutality. But when he ran for office, he ran basically as a technocrat. You know, I'm confident. I can do the job. The current mayor, Michael Hancock, he's a little different. He came out of the Urban League, which always has been kind of state because they have a lot of relationships with businesses and government um, and less radical. Um, but he had an activist background, but that's not how he ran for mayor. Um The other thing I would say about the differences between the two cities is kind of important this is this ethnic consciousness. Peter Cotter referred to that, the tribalism. I'll just give you one anecdote. Uh, I visit Denver usually every summer and I stay with my sister, and at least when I was younger, I walked from her house to the main city park and walked around it and walked back. Uh, and on the way back, I would often stop at this deli. cheese, bottle of water, and I was in and out of there for years, and then one time I went in there, I looked down at the newsstand, and I saw an Italian-American newspaper, and then a light went off. Oh, Spinelli's. Of course, it's an Italian joint, but, you know, nobody sort of focuses on that in Denver, um, except for the Hispanic population. For the longest, basically Mexican and has now has more Central American uh, elements uh, since the recent migration in recent decades, um, but the sort of ethnic tribalism consciousness—it's a newer city, a couple of years, 100 years younger than Boston, maybe more than that. And people
2: aren't dug into their ethnic identity. Ken mentioning the point about well, maybe if Mel King had grown up there, it would be different—is really spot on, because. Um, you can't consider Mel King in isolation. You have to figure him in relation to characters like John Kerrigan in Pixie Palladino, um, uh, respectively members of the Boston City Council and the Boston School Committee, who were as racist as any Southern politician at least in my opinion, all the likes of Louise Day Hicks, who, while I believe was not a racist herself, knew how to play the race card ever so effectively. And I'm surprised at myself how much I find myself reaching back to the past about that. But um, this is what... You know, until 1983, shaped Boston municipal politics. Now, on a more hopeful note, I would say that changed again around 2009 when um, Ayanna Presley ran. And Presley, in many ways, would be a I don't know, Can the classic Denver candidate. At the moment, you know, the image we have of Presley is as the firebrand anti-Trumpian congresswoman. And that is an accurate image. Just as John Kerrigan and Pixie Palladino happened, so did, so did Donald Trump. But um, Presley on the Boston City Council was... Um, well, she was herself, but she was not a lightning rod. Uh, she was very much a uniter. Among the issues she chose uh, were um, issues that were of concern to families and women and children, things that brought people together.
0: Peter, as you say that, I'm thinking of in Ken's piece, there's a couple references to Ayanna Presley and John Connolly, the former mayoral candidate, campaigning for the city council together in West Roxbury. And Ken, you even honed in on that line that Presley would use uh, for with female voters of all demographics saying something like, you know, ladies, I think, you know, we need someone to keep the men in line, which, which underscores the very
2: point Peter is making. Yeah, I mean, I was really struck as... You know, a local guy. That, although um, Presley had run really well her first time, I, I think she. Let me just. Yeah, she carried. I think thirteen of the twenty-two wards, uh, or ran strong, but she was in some trouble her second time up. For by the way, for no particular reason, and I know among my family members and neighbors, there was really a sense of. Jeez, it would be a shame if she wasn't reelected. It would be, it would be a you know a, a poor reflection on Boston. It would look like Boston was going back to the the days of pre nineteen eighty three. And um, you know the most obvious manifestation of that was Conley, who by the way did a very shrewd political thing by campaigning with her. But um, just because it's shrewd. Doesn't mean it wasn't the right thing to do, and I would say a hundred years from now, when when you know historians look back at the history of Boston, that 2009 was a real turning point.
1: Well, I think Peter's right about that. And, you know, I often tell reporters when they start stretching things too far that you know, I say we're not soothsayers. We can't predict the future. <laughs> but I would say that I sense that the balance of power in the city of Boston is shifting. And it's shifting away from being Irish-dominated. And I should add that at least since 2000, there have been more people of African descent in Boston than there have been Irish descent. Um, and it's shifting towards that slight demographic majority of people of color. I mean, the Irish basically controlled the mayoralty for more than a century, with the exception of 20 years that Menino, the Italian American, uh, occupied that office. And we may be approaching the time where we ask the question, will Marty Walsh be the last Irish mayor of Boston? Um, We can't be sure about that. And I look back at the history and before James Michael Curley was elected and that person that long line of Irish mayors in the early 1900s, it was the first Irish mayor of Boston was elected in 1880. So there was a little back and forth before Irish domination locked in. And quite frankly, I'm not sure that would be the best thing for the city to have people of color dominate the mayoralty in the same way. You know, in a world where political talent is distributed across demographic lines, you know, what happens to a mayoralty could look like what it has in Denver in recent years. Latino, African-American, white, African-American. So the power, you know, gets shared across different communities and
2: people think that's the way it should be. The talented are spread across different groups. People keep asking me, when's a white guy gonna declare for mayor of Boston? And I answer, what makes you think one will? I mean, it's a a reductionist way of looking at it. What I find most interesting is that, you know, um, so many women are declared. You know, we've got four women running for the mayoralty here, Um, you know. Assuming that that Kim
0: Janey does, right, which is still sort of a a grand question mark.
2: Adam, we may make an editor out of of you yet. (laughs) I I got ahead of myself there. But, um, you know, that is remarkable in Boston's political culture. Um, It's remarkable, And um, I I think that may have something to do with uh, the sort of skills that are needed in the digital age um, to carry on public life. Um, You know, social media is on the one hand, very harsh and cutting, but on the other hand, it's very intimate. And I, 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 I wonder to what degree that may be a contributing factor in um, shaping the field of candidates running for mayor of Boston.
0: Before I ask a, a final question of Ken, are there any other points that either of you want to make that you haven't been able to make yet? I mean, obviously, this is a huge topic and, you know, could be several books, has been several books, but anything that I haven't given either of you a chance to talk about that, that you want to touch on?
1: I'll just make this one point uh, based on my research comparing Denver and Boston and also my experience covering congressional races and majority minority districts across congressional districts across the country. If there is going to be this time around a mayor of color elected. I strongly suspect based on that experience and that research, it'll be the candidate of color who attracts the most white support. People of color will be fractured. Uh, their levels of political engagement are not as high as white Bostonians. Um, so that's what I would expect to keep an eye on. These candidates of color looking at what level of white support they're drawing and how broad it is.
2: No, I I would agree with that, Ken. That's why when, you know, people ask me or speculate about, you know, the great white male candidate coming in, that I'm not so sure there will be one. Uh, Too soon to say. We've we've still got a long way to go. But um, Boston politics has changed so remarkably, you know, since 2009. Um, I would say that the one thing people underestimate about what we might call the new Boston politics is, in very raw terms, the power of white voters, who may no longer be the majority, but who are a huge block of voters. so we'll have to see.
0: I should mention, just before we get angry emails, that we do have Dana depelto from Dorchester, who's said he's running for mayor. He is not, I think, thought of at this point as a top-tier candidate. But there's a white guy, if you're looking for, uh, for a white guy.
2: I stand corrected.
0: Ken, let me ask you one last thing before we wrap up. At the end of your piece for the Trotter Review you outlined a bunch of steps that you thought would help hasten the day when Boston might elect a black mayor or a mayor of color. You were talking about changes in at the grassroots level that might help make this happen. Those specific changes didn't occur. We've talked about other changes that did. Are you surprised that we came this far this quickly?
1: Not really, because I, I thought this could have happened uh back when Menino stepped down, people had been on their toes. I mean, I think there's been some informal structures that have perhaps accomplished some of the things I talked about at the end of the article. I think the Black Lives Matter movement brought together young people behind a common cause and animated them, gave them a boost of political energy. And I think younger people in the city, including Black people of different ancestries have spent more time with each other in schools and sharing common interests about music or dance or fashion, social media. And maybe some of those divisions have narrowed. And I also think, one of the reasons I'm not surprised in this moment, because I watched what's happened on the city council. Uh, I have watched the election of black women um, oh, Lydia Edwards, specifically from East Boston. First time an African-American had been elected a district counselor from a district other than the Roxbury, Dorchester, Dorchester, Dorchester Mattapan. And
0: she's from Michigan, no less.
1: Uh, don't say that out too too loud in some place. <laughs> <laughs> you mean she, she's an implant? She's an implant. And, you know, hearing Peter talk about some of those old characters from the elected school committee and the elected city council, I'm struck again about how the caliber of the members of this council today is so much higher than what we had then. And not just in terms of racial outlook, but just scope, intelligence, learnedness, high-mindedness. I mean, a lot of those people in that city council were basically self-serving individuals. This is a pretty, pretty good city council based on you know, what they bring to the table Too bad the government doesn't give more of a role than they get, (laughs) but it's a big improvement. Um, And what Peter says, I think about Louise Day Hicks is true from what I know. The late Paul Parks, who was an African-American state secretary of education, described to me once. uh, He was trying to calm Louise Day Hicks down. She invited him to her home. That's not like a racist. He met her in our home on Columbia Road in Dorchester, I believe. And he tried to talk her down from the race bait. And she basically said, you know, that's what I got to do to get elected. And he had a clear sense that she didn't really believe it. But it was expedient, however uh, dishonorable. And I'm not so sure about Pixie Panaldina. I've been debating whether to say this. But she was still on the elected school committee when I, as a young cub reporter at the Globe, covering that school committee and one day she flounced by me and was flirting with me and i was like really pixie <laughs> racist pixie really
0: <laughs> kind of
1: spun my head it could be one of those things too and governments in public but you know in private other stuff happens you know i'm glad those days are over i'm glad they're
2: over and well, the city's better for it shortly before tom Menino died We were in a green room together and speculating about, you know, who would succeed him. And he told me dead seriously that he fully expected to be the last white mayor of Boston for a while, for a while. He was wrong, but what I found so interesting about it was Tom Menino was a person who, he was a mean son of a gun, but he didn't have a hateful bone in his body. And what I was really struck by was the way he said, for a while.
0: All right, that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Ken Cooper, Thank you so much for making time to join us. This was really interesting.
1: Thanks for having me, Adam.
0: And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to The Scrum, rate us if you haven't, and talk back to us. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Our producer Zoe Matthews is at Zoe S. Matthews with one T, and Peter, you are?
2: At Cadzis, capital K-A-D-Z-I-S. I'll
0: send out a link to Ken's article so you can read it for yourself. We'll talk to you again soon. The Scrum is a production of GBH
2: News.